Hello, my name is Omaya Jones, and this is the Arkansas Times Week in Review podcast for the week of Friday, January 19th, 2024. Thanks for joining us. On today's program, Benjamin Hardy and Dave Ramsey go along on Arkansas Learns in the first of a two-part series that will be continued next week. We have endorsements, but first, Benji and Mary Hennigan talk about the water shortage affecting residents of Stone County. So typically, Mary, you cover uh, Little Rock and the, and the city beat around here, but this week things have been a bit slower around the city because everything's been frozen. So you've been looking into an interesting story up in northern Arkansas in Stone County. That's um, that's where Mountain View is for um, folks that may not know. And they've had some serious water problems up there that have coincided with this um, sort of record-setting cold. So what's happened up there, Mary? Yeah, so really a combination of things happened. Before the winter storm even arrived, that section of Arkansas received a lot of rain, as did others. Um, And the White River rose. And with that, a lot of debris, trash, mud, silt, those things clogged up the water treatment facility in Mountain View. So they get their water from the White River? They do. And they pump it from the river into the treatment facility. It goes through lots of water treatment places before it ends up uh-huh. in the tank in Mountain View. Um, but it does come from the river. Got it. So they had some issues with the rain and then replacing pumps that had gone awry. So the winter weather made replacing those pumps really difficult. Uh, the path down to the river, the mayor of Mountain View, Roger Gardner, described it as treacherous. It's, uh-huh. you know, icy, it's dark. They were working around the clock day and night um, to fix the water. But Unfortunately for the residents in Stone County, uh, they lost water on Sunday. Today is Friday, and they still do not have full access to their water. Um, So what happened is that the pumps uh, needed a replacement, and Mm -hmm. a couple surrounding cities offered replacements. Eventually, two rentals from Conway did the trick for a little while. So Mm -hmm. water was pumping back into the Mountain View facility, but the tank wasn't filling up fast enough and staying full so that the surrounding water associations, which pump from the Mountain View tank and distribute it to the residents, uh, the Mountain View tank was emptying, essentially, before the water associations could fill up their tanks and distribute it. Yeah, I mean, you and I talked a little bit about this yesterday, but I mean, I did not know anything about how rural water associations work, but I guess these are sort of local... Uh, entities that that work with the treatment facility in Mountain View to to extend water services to outlying parts of the county. Right. It's a little complicated, but essentially the hub is Mountain View, and then there are water associations that pull water from the hub. But that means if Mountain if Mountain View's system isn't working, then all over the county there are potentially problems. Right. So on Sunday, Mayor Roger Gardner advised the water associations to turn off their pumps because Mountain View is having issues. So does that just mean yeah, people have been without water? all over the county without would when in these sub-zero temperatures? Yeah, so the temperature has been near zero and people don't have any water and that's been affecting their lives, yeah. <laughs> to say the least. There's a lot of farming in Stone County and so people have livestock that they need to water. I talked with a woman, Stacy Stubbs, and she raises chickens. Uh, she has two full chicken houses and those animals consume a lot of water. Stubbs said up to 1,200 gallons per house per day. So having no water um, is a huge impact on her business. She said that it's likely that the hens will produce less eggs because they consume less water, and that can also have an impact on her income. Yes. Yeah, so is she? Where is she getting water? Is she? 
Right. So Stubbs grows chickens for a company in Batesville called Ozark Mountain Poultry, and they have delivered a thousand gallons a day on Wednesday and Thursday. And that has helped, um, of course, but it's still not enough because she has to split the thousand between two houses and one house, you know, consumes 1200 gallons. So it's been a bit of a stretch. Yeah. Um, and have you spoken to anybody else up there? I did. I also talked with Shelly Smith, who sometimes contributes for the Arkansas Times. And uh, she said that as soon as she found out that the water was going to be shut off, she immediately put buckets under her dripping faucets to catch any drop that she could get. Mm-hmm. Um, then she started taking what she called bucket baths. Um, she Smith was very fun to talk to. Uh, she's <laughs> being very candid about what they are going through up there. She said that... You take a little bit of boiling water and then mix it with the cold bucket water so you get this lukewarm concoction and then put a little bit in the sink and then, you know, put so it in where you... That's what you got to do if you're uh, working with, with uh, the workers that you have, right? Yeah, just put it on your smelly bits and then move on. They got also, it. she lives with her husband and some animals and, you know, it's a, a tough decision to decide when the toilet is full enough to flush, she said. Sure. Um, yeah, so that's Stone County. Are there other water issues elsewhere in the state? There are other issues. Uh, none at this time. I have detailed reports enough as Stone County, but there are known issues in Helena, West Helena. The Arkansas National Guard dispatched a water truck there on Thursday. And also the State Department of Health has issued dozens of boil orders since the winter weather started on January 15th. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll keep an eye on it. Thank you, Mary. Thanks, Benji. David Ramsey has written a two-part series on Arkansas learners detailing how the law affects teachers and ways that range from teacher pay to the Teacher Affairs Dismissal Act. Dave called in and spoke with managing editor Benji Hardy about his article and what he learned. This is the first of a two-part conversation. So it's been a bit of a slow news week around here. Um, I mean, I think we've all been occupied with the winter weather, the snow, and the, and the record cold temperatures in Little Rock. Uh, that means, though, that state and local offices have been closed, and um, there's, there's um, yeah, I mean, stuff going on, of course, all the time. But um, we thought we'd seize the opportunity to, to talk a bit more in a bit more depth than usual about a topic we've been following for a long time, that's Arkansas Learns. Um, so today we'll be talking to David Ramsey, who many of you know well, um, about his recent reporting on an aspect of Arkansas Learns that's got a little bit neglected. I think it was got a lot of attention back when the legislation was first passed. And then it's been overshadowed somewhat by school vouchers, since that is such a monumental change in how how the state provides for for education, um, understandably so. But um, that the, the topic at hand is more around teachers and, and teacher salaries and uh, labor protections and, and, and how all of those things were changed by the law that passed last spring. So uh, let's get to it. Uh, hello, Dave. Hey, how's it going? All right. So, so you just completed a couple of pieces that were a long time coming um, around how teachers in Arkansas are affected by Arkansas Learns. And I think sort of at the top of the list is salaries, because uh, Governor Sarah Sanders is fond of saying that Learns gave a huge boost to teachers by raising salaries across the board. That's going to do wonders for retention and so on. So let's start with that. How, how exactly has Learns changed teacher pay and benefits? That's right. And, and I think there's a there's a political context here, which is sort of just like in Florida, where I think often the governor takes her cues from. Ron DeSantis did something similar, where they sort of had this big idea around 
uh, imposing these these universal voucher programs. And, and vouchers are not very politically popular and, and obviously have a lot of opposition from uh, public school teachers, public school families, that kind of thing. And so you could kind of think of this in a way as like, you know, this is the spoonful of sugar that makes the medicine go down. I think because raising teacher salaries is really popular, kind of insisting that that be attached to this um, other program was kind of part of the political backdrop. And in terms of what the law actually does, so it does raise the uh, minimum salary for first year teachers uh, to 50000 And that's a big deal. And that is absolutely something that I think basically more or less everyone applauds. You know, the previous year, what the system that it replaced is that there used to be the state had minimum salaries, like a, uh, a salary schedule, and they had minimum salaries based on your years of experience and whether or not you had a master's degree. And there were sort of different salaries at each slot. Some districts paid more than that, but that was kind of the bare minimum you had to pay. So that's how it was before. And so last year, the minimum salary was $36,000 for a first-year teacher. First-year so teacher without a master's, up, is that correct? Without a master's, yeah. exactly. So jumping all the way up to 50000 that's like a huge raise. Arkansas was like, I think, 48th in the nation in average starting teacher salaries last year. And now we're sort of bumped up into the top tier in terms of that minimum starting salary. I think uh, there's only five states in the District of Columbia that required a starting salary that high last year. So this is like a big major jump. Um, they also made sure that every anyone that was already making 50000 or more also got a $2,000 raise. There's been, it's a little, there's been a little bit of wishy-washiness about whether this is a one-time bonus or, or an ongoing raise, but at least that, you know, I spoke with an education department spokesperson and they said it would be ongoing. So that would be an ongoing raise. So all of that is like definitely a good deal. And, and similar, you know, I think the, the specifically the $50,000 minimum that was in that same minimum was in the the more narrow bill that just focused on giving teachers a raise that Democrats were um, pushing to no avail, and that I think teachers union uh, teachers unions uh, would be more behind. The issue, the thing that they're frustrated about, is kind of the way this was structured, and the way that it may kind of I, I think create some concerns or frustrations for veteran teachers in particular, and so. I guess like one thing to understand is that, you know, some districts were paying way more than the old minimums. So these are, you know, wealthier districts. Like, for example, Springdale had already gotten up to, they were the only one, but they had already gotten up to that $50,000 level. No, no other district had. Got but it. They for, had for, the, for, for the bottom, the bottom rung of the ladder. For the bottom, exactly. Yeah. For the bottom. So for them, like the going from 50000 you know, the change is like nothing. Or, or, you know, if you had a district that say their first year teacher with just a bachelor's, let's say it was 45. Okay. That's a jump, but it's like reasonable. Right. But you also had, I mean, 97 districts, 2021, just use that, that, that minimum level set by the state for their first year teachers again, without a master. So that's, that would be $36,000 last year. So in that case, you're jumping up to 14,000. Okay. So if you think about it, what that means is that the, the districts that are, you know, lower income, uh, smaller rural districts, districts that just have less money, basically, they now are facing this big major jump. Now what learns does 
is it funds that jump for those you know up to fifty thousand, and it funds the that two thousand dollar bump I mentioned for teachers making more than fifty thousand. But the 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 kind of are you with me so far? I'm with you so <laughs> far. Yeah. Okay. It, it, it does provide new money, right? Yes, it does provide new money. And and there's concerns about uh, the sustainability of that, but we put that to the side. It provides new money to to get that first year rate up to 50,000. But what it doesn't do is let's say that you wanted to have your first year teachers make 50,000 and then you want your second year teachers to make I don't know, 51,000 and so on. It doesn't provide funding to create raises in a new schedule in which you're starting at 50,000. So again, like if if you imagine a district that was paying 36 before, if they were using the old the old schedule that was mandated by the state with ha- which has the various minimums, it would go from 36,000 to then after one year of experience you would get a $450 raise to 36 450 and then another $450 raise and this would keep on going all the way up until year 15. So those were baked in to and some schools had bigger jumps than that, some schools kept the raises going for more years than that. So a typical situation, well not just typical, I mean basically all districts, you know, had a starting salary that was lower than this new learns imposed salary but they had these built-in raises based on experience and based on whether or not you had a master's. And LEARNS has this $50,000 minimum, but as long as you comply with that, it doesn't, there is no mandate beyond that. So, yeah, and and, and both you and our friends over at the Arkansas Advocate have been, have reported a little bit on just the effect this had on a number of districts where the schedule is just like basically flattened completely where like that's right. First that's year right. teacher, so, I mean, 10 year veteran, 15 year veteran making basically the same amount. Everybody's making 50,000. Right. And so, yeah, you have a lot of districts where literally everyone is making 50,000. You have a lot of districts where they, they were able to keep raises in their, new schedule. I mean, (laughs) one kind of funny note about this is that, you know, this issue was raised as a potential problem and I'll kind of get to why in a little bit, but, but this issue was raised as a potential problem during the the debate over learns and, uh, you know, learns backers kind of scoffed and said, this wasn't going to happen. But in any event, they, they kind of added something last minute that said, okay, you you do have to create a new salary schedule Uh, by salary schedule. Again, I, I mean, description of these, incremental raises but that was just like totally meaningless because basically what a bunch of districts did is just created a new salary schedule that just says 50,000 over and over and over again so (laughs) i mean it's almost comical to like look at the look at the salary schedules but but the the key point here is that you have the funding to get up to that 50,000 level but you don't have funding to build in raises on top of that if that's what you want to do one one reason why this is also important to kind of zoom out is just like about the question of retention of teachers. And I mean, on the one hand, like when you're recruiting new teachers, I think, sure, like the starting salary is now going up. Like you would think that would make teaching in Dumas or wherever much more attractive for a first year worker, you know, a new teacher entering the workforce. 
But staying in Dumas, you know, after as the years go by, is going to seem less attractive if it's, you know, you're not getting a raise, perhaps. That's right. There, there's sort of three big areas where veteran teachers have expressed concerns. The first and, and the first is what you mentioned, this this retention issue. And it's I guess like one thing that I do want to be clear about is that the old mandated minimums that the state had, they topped out under 50,000. So sure. on, in some sense, it's like for a poorer district, like probably a lot of people are going to net out winners no matter what. Right. But I think that there's with this retention issue, there's kind of this psychological factor where it's just like, yeah, it's like, you know, I think that if you're just stuck at the exact same salary, you can start to feel stuck. And I think that that raises with experience and kind of rewarding teachers who stick around, who like know the community, know the school, you know, plant themselves in that place, like buy a home, are in it for the long haul. That's just always been part of kind of the structure um, of these public school communities. And I think that is feeling that's creating some real tension and concern. And I think administrators are kind of scrambling because they want to give raises. You talk to administrators and they really value um, experienced teachers and are kind of concerned how what this looks like if you don't have raises baked in. The second thing is that, you know, there are some veteran teachers who, I mean, the situations are going to like vary dramatically place to place, but there are some veteran teachers who probably are going to lose out in the long run just because districts are kind of, you know, even if they're not completely flattening their pay schedule to make everything 50,000, they are generally kind of squeezing it. So the raises may be smaller, they may go on for less amount of time, whatever. And that, that can kind of, you know, people can end up losing out in the long run if they've, you know, if they've been, if they've been around for a while, some veteran teachers will end up losing out. And then the the other thing is just kind of, you know, morale and solidarity among the teaching staff. I think that there's, I mean, this is an issue that came up a lot talking to teachers and maybe it sounds squishy to people, but I think there's this sense that it just feels unfair for a 10-year teacher who's been like, you know, who came in at a much lower salary, who's been, you know, developing their experience and skills over the period of a decade, they've been loyal, they've been there, they've gotten better and better. And now, you know, a teacher is going to come in straight out of college and make the exact same salary. And I think that that is just kind of creating this, it's not even just about sort of the tension that might create among teachers. I think it's also and this speaks to, I think, a broader issue with all of this stuff, it kind of feels like uh, to veteran teachers, like they're being devalued, like they're like the they're kind of um, the the as a profession, it's kind of being they're they're being recast as these like replaceable cogs that you can just kind of grab someone off the street or whatever. And like and, and I think that it feels I think that feels very frustrating and worrisome that the idea that they are, you know, that this is a serious profession with serious training and serious skills is is kind of being undercut or devalued. And instead, they're just kind of like, you know, whatever, we can just replace you with someone straight off the street. They're just as good as you. They're going to make the same salary. So I think that kind of underlies a lot of this. Relatedly, you know, the old 
um, pre-learns salary schedule had automatic pay bumps for teachers that have a master's degree. That's been done away with. You know, I, I will say that the, you know, the evidence about how much having a master's um, really impacts student achievement, I think is unclear at best. But I think that this is sort of, I think teachers are frustrated in the same way where they have been doing things to try to, you know, I- improve their performance in the classroom, to, to, to do professional development, to grow and learn as educators, and that that too is just kind of being devalued. I mean, a number of people <laughs> brought up this program that has not happened in Arkansas, but happened in Florida, where again, perhaps our governor is taking her cues, where, you know, they were basically had fast-tracked, I think, retired military veterans who didn't even need to have a bachelor's degree and all this stuff. So it's like, I think that that's, that's this kind of underlying concern that, that there's just this sense in which the profession itself is, is being attacked. And I think that that's a feeling that teachers have, even if, you know, they are in a district where if you sat down and looked at the numbers on net, they gained financially uh, from learns. The, the thing that I want to mention also, this does actually tie into the way in which this law was a big omnibus thing with that was tied to the vouchers. Because if you look at the, the alternative um, bill that Democrats proposed, uh, the RAISE Act, which just focused on teacher salaries, they have much more, they also went to 50,000, but have much more substantial raises for veterans. Okay, so how were they able to do that? Well, I mean, <laughs> the voucher program, which directs money to private school families and, and ultimately delivers customers to private schools to allow them to pay teachers more, like that costs a lot of state money. That's like taking tens of millions of dollars in state taxpayer money and funneling it directly to basically to, to families who want to send their kids to private school, including those, including mostly families that were already in private school. So I say that to say that like <laughs> part of the context of the frustration is that that was money that could have been put into a, a, a sort of maybe more thoughtful or, or more broadly inclusive mechanism to raise uh, teacher salaries. And lastly today, we have some endorsements for you. Oh, are we doing it? We're just doing it. I think, it. We're, we I just think this is in. it. Okay. Yeah, so I thought this is it. So first I want to endorse Barry Linden, which we are screening next week at the Riverdale 10. It was originally supposed to be this Tuesday, but because of the snow, we got to oh. push a week. Okay, great. So Tuesday at 6.30. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. we noticed that actually, yeah, yeah. and we were disappointed that we didn't get to see it. So yeah. next Tuesday. Yes, and because it is a longer movie, it starts at 6.30 as opposed to the usual 7 o'clock. Ooh, okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, so it's, it's a Stanley Kubrick yes, film. Yes, it's, right? uh, it's a Stanley Kubrick film. It's I think is one of his best films. It's definitely one of his most beautifully shot films. It's notoriously shot. All, like, all the interiors are lit with candles, hmm. uh, trying to appro- approximate actual 17th century indoor lighting to the best they can. Hmm. They also notoriously innovated different camera lenses and things to, to be able to capture all of that. Mm-hmm. That the film is fantastic. It's one of the greatest films of all time, I think, and it's also wow. one of very or one of Stanley Kubrick's greatest films. Yeah, but it is long, so eat beforehand. And um, okay, <laughs> I'll also say so. Like we also it was selected to be a part of the series before Ryan O'Neill died, but Ryan O'Neill, who stars as Barry Lyndon, did die in December, within within days of us selecting it. Got it. Yeah. Um, 
Is it wait? Is it is it like is it just like a story of like his life, sort of? Or? Yeah. So Barry Lyndon is his character who wants to ascend the social ranks. It's it's about that. So it's hard to give a synopsis of something. It's Barry Lyndon. Okay, you got something else too. I do have something else. So, like I said, I was gonna do this episode of Ninety Nine Percent Invisible, but there's actually another one that I would prefer to recommend. So one of my it's not really a resolution. It's like an ever ever ongoing thing is just to read more is like, I want to read more and they're doing a thing this year. It's like a book club and once a month they they're going to be going through uh, Robert K. Rose, the power broker. Oh, and so it's interviews with different people. So they're going through like one chapter at a time and they're doing these interviews with different people. And I know like they had Conan O'Brien on for like the preview episode of it. So it's just Roman Mars and a guest going through Robert Caro's The Power Broker, which as they, they talked about this in the previous episode, and it's, I guess it's true for me now, which is a lot of people have a copy of the book that's just sitting there. That they have not actually, yes. Yeah. Like everybody owns it, but very few people have actually read it. And so I'm excited to go through The Power Broker, especially after having watched the Cairo Gottlieb documentary, Turn Every Page, that came out last year. I mean, it's also, it's, I think it's especially like a running joke in New York where like, because it is like seen as this sort of um, classic book of New York City, sort of documenting the development of modern New York and this guy who shaped it so fundamentally. Right. Um, and yeah, everybody who, who sort of fancies themselves a reader in New York has that book. But right. oh. Okay. Uh, do you have any endorsements? Yeah, well, so I, um, I briefly lived in New York and I, I went back there for a wedding just recently and had the chance to go to a museum that I've heard about for many years, but never, never checked out before. It's the Tenement Museum. So um, I'd recommend, yeah, if, if, if you ever uh, have the chance, check it out. It's in the Lower East Side. And the, the idea here, it's like, it is a, a preservation of, a, of a, an old tenement building. Um, this building was boarded up in the 60s or 70s by the landlord or the upper floors were but the lower floors were left like storefronts and then it was sort of basically untouched for decades and then some historical preservationists found it and it was a bit of a yeah this capsule from an earlier time and it has evolved into this this place where they try to studiously recreate the apartments in this building as they actually were based on the actual people that lived there um interviews with surviving family members some of i mean you know most of them are very old or now dead but like i mean about living there as children um census records um various other information but i mean it's all done you know towards creating like an actual faithful record of like yes this family lived here we know that they were immigrants from lithuania we know that they lived here from this state to this state that they had these kind of occupations and so on um and it's not a traditional museum where you just kind of wander through and look at whatever. You, it, it takes the form of like a guided tour so that a tour guide is sort of leading you through these people's lives and answering questions, sort of inviting you to imagine like what their lives were like and so on. Um, you know, it sounds a little bit corny almost, but it's, it's, it's really like very touching, I think, to be in a place where you know that these real people actually were and to imagine like, yeah, they, they stood in the spot where you're standing. Um, so check it out. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening to the Arkansas Times Week in Review podcast. We'll see you next week.